let me introduce you to inspiring entrepreneurs. Hi there, my name is Ben Gothard. My mission is to interview incredible entrepreneurs who are changing the world and present their stories to you, unscripted and unedited. From billionaires to Forbes 30 under 30 recipients to New York Times best-selling authors and much, much more, these people are living proof that nothing is impossible. Join me on this journey to learn from their experiences and become the person you're meant to be. Welcome to the Project Egg Show every morning at 8 a.m. Central. Two, one. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Project Egg Show. Today, we have the honor of speaking with Josh Zloof. Founded on the idea of making one billion people happy, Josh, the co-founder and CEO of Sudden Coffee, has served over 100,000 cups of his premier instant coffee that he delivers right to your door. With over 3.3 million raised from investors like Y Combinator and CRV, Sudden has been featured in Food and Wine, The New York Times, and GQ. Now, Josh has also done some other amazing things and has a ton of impressive accolades that I could not possibly cover in this very brief introduction. So I'll stop talking so that you can meet the wonderful, the amazing Josh. How are you doing today? Hey, good. Thanks for that intro. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Thank you for carving out the time to be here for the show today. I'm excited. I know everybody else is excited. Hopefully, you're excited. Let's do this. Definitely. What, Definitely. what is your story? What is my story? Um, so, I was, yeah, we're, we're, should I start from the very beginning? I had two parents. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, so I, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I was actually born in New York, but grew up kind of around the startup tech scene, stuff like that. Um, my dad actually was in computer science and I, I kind of just grew up around that environment. Um, I went to school and I got really into this idea of how do you make restaurants more efficient? And it almost became this like obsession. Like I went to McDonald's, there's a really long line and I wanted to figure out how you could rearrange the store to make it more and more efficient. So I uh, ended up going to, into consulting after school because I wanted to figure out, you know, how to get paid to do that. And so I worked at a company called McKinsey and went to factories and call centers and just did that over and over again. And then the Bay Area was calling me back and I wanted to figure out how to merge that with technology. Like what could you do to make a restaurant more efficient with an iPad app? And I joined Groupon at the time. Groupon was taking off and making all these apps for restaurants. And so that was really my first experience working in food, in the food industry in some form. And I realized that, um, you know, food is actually about not about being efficient. It's about making people feel good. It's about connecting with people. And that was for me, this really big turning point. And then everything after that was about, you know, how do you make people feel good with food and drink? And so quit my job, spent a year and a half kind of 
in the desert, trying out different ideas, not literally the desert, but the startup desert. And uh, eventually started working on Sudden Coffee. And that was almost four years ago. When you're talking about that pivotal change, when you went from thinking it was about efficiency to it was more about connecting and giving them the good feeling and the experience. That's yep. a pretty monumental shift in thinking. Yeah. What was the catalyst for that change? Yeah. Uh, so I would say there's two, there were two phases, uh, two stages for me. The first was um, I was going to a bunch of restaurants when I was working at Groupon, um, places, Michelin star places. So, um, Alinea, Aviary, these are like the top restaurants in the country. And I met with one of the um, managers there and he, he said, you know, we're looking for features for our app. Like how do we automate stuff? You know? And he's like, I like to, when I'm in a restaurant, when I'm managing the restaurant, I look at a customer and I ask myself, what are they going to ask for before they ask for it? And how can I get ahead of predicting what they want? If I see someone reaching for a coat, I'm going to call them an Uber. If I see them, uh, you know, standing up, I'm going to, you know, put their napkin down or something like that. And all of a sudden I realized, Hey, you know, it's not about removing the person out of the process. It's about giving the human tools to deliver that better process. Um, these guys would have literally a book, a binder on every customer. If you book a reservation at one of these restaurants, they'll go and stalk you on LinkedIn, Facebook, find out if it's your anniversary without you having to say anything, they figure this stuff out. Um, and so I, I got into that. I read this book by this guy, Danny Meyer. He's one of the top restaurateurs and that sort of like developed my thinking around it. Uh, the second phase though was I, I was sort of into this, but I didn't believe for myself whether I could jump in and do that. You know, like getting into food and telling your family and your friends that, hey, I'm like leaving tech and I'm going to do this coffee thing or this food thing. Um, I needed to really believe in it, believe that that was what I was meant to do or believe that I was excited about that. And that was a different, there's a lot there that led to that. So let's explore that because that seems like it's a hugely impactful point. Like, let's explore that. Yeah. Um, so, um, I, so this all sort of took place after I left Groupon. I just started trying out different startup ideas. And um, the first idea I tried was a personal shopping service. I would send someone to your house, look at your closet, come back and bring clothes for you. And um, everything was sort of like, you know, I was looking at my skill set and tech and, you know, I was just trying out idea after idea. Um, and they all kind of, you know, it was more just based off the math around like, what's a good business model? What are, what's my skill set? You know, how do I combine those things? Like this very analytical approach. And I spent a year tr just trying stuff out and not really feeling a hook. The thing that was interesting was like, you work on these ideas that actually could probably be a good idea, but I couldn't make it happen. Like I, I would wake up and not want to do it. Um, and eventually I, I, uh, through a friend, friend of a friend, um, hired a, a management coach for myself or a goals coach. Um, cause one of the ideas I was working on was around coaching. And so I got intro to uh, this person, Michelle, 
who was great. And she took me through this exercise around finding my five values. Like what are your core values? And that was, I would say one of the most pivotal exercises in my life. Um, and so I realized that, you know, my values are, um, purpose, excitement, community, um, relaxation. And so all of these ideas I had been working on, um, you know, I was working on an ad tech idea at some point and there was no community aspect. There was nothing that had to do with people. Um, and then in, in meanwhile, in my background, I was actually working on a Burning Man camp and I'd spend like all my time on this Burning Man camp and nothing on this ad tech idea. And, um, she called out like, Hey, you know, um, Burning Man is community. Like you there's community, there's excitement, there's, um, this relaxation when you get, when you get to do it. And so if you can just find startup ideas that have those five values, then you're good. And once I owned up to that, then I said, okay, well, you know, all of these, I've been working on other food ideas, um, in the background also, and they all had that theme. And that allowed me to really just own up to that and just say, cool, like this is like this aligns to all my values. They're different than other people's values. That's why I like them and other people might not. And that's okay. And just roll with it. Why were those five values yours? Like why? Um, I don't like, how do you, so I don't know why those ones specifically are me. Um, I can tell you the way that we sort of got to them and also kind of how they're different than other people's, if that makes sense. Uh, so the basis of the exercise was, um, there was like a really long survey, but there were three questions that uh, I remember filling out. One was name three moments that you um, felt the most excited or the most alive name three moments. I think a why was actually the right, the specific word name three moments when you felt the most accomplished or like you had done something, uh, and name three moments when you felt the most, I think it was fulfilled and they all kind of sound similar, but they're actually a little bit different. And so I would have these, you know, example, uh, is, um, a moment of feeling, uh, accomplished was, working really hard at something and like I really liked the idea of spending two months being really focused and actually seeing the progress and seeing day by day progress and so that for me was an example of growth like I need to be working on something where you're getting better and better every day contrast that with uh I got a lot of friends who are in science and when you're in science you might be um working on something for like a year and you can't like the experiments aren't going anywhere and suddenly you have a breakthrough and that breakthrough is like, you go from here to here and you're, but you're so interested by the intellectual rigor of that like process that you're like, cool, I don't need to have daily progress. I just need to be doing something using my brain. And for me, like I grew up in, you know, like a mathy household. And so I was always like, Oh, I really need to be doing something that is really intellectually stimulating like i need to be doing something that's really smart but um that wasn't a value for me it turns out so i've been working on all these ideas where i'm like oh what's the crazy algorithm or what's the math like you know which i can do or i like doing but it was very different than 
you know, with coffee or with food, like I could get better at it every day. We could make it cheaper every day. We could sell more every day. We could make, so I'm like seeing this like constant progress. And so that was an example of like, before I had been trying to do things that might've been intellectually hard or, you know, mathematically hard, but not um, community driven. And, and so seeing that, oh, if I do something that's community driven that I can tell people about, share with people, give you a coffee, that for me is really important. And that was kind of like a, a big realization for me. You used the word belief uh, when you were saying that you, you were trying all those, those ideas in that year and they may work for somebody else, but they weren't, they weren't the right things for you. Yep. And, and you said that was, that was tied to, to your belief, maybe, maybe in yourself or maybe in the idea when you got clarity on your core values how did that then change your belief? What was the relationship between those two? Yeah, um, I think the big, the, the two big things were um, the first one was not was no longer putting stock in other people's values, which I think is is a thing that we tend to do. So, like when you're doing something that's in aligned with your values, it feels ridiculously easy. Like it feels like you have a cheat code on the world. And so you don't think it's hard. So you're just like, why should I be doing this thing? Like, so for me, building the Burning Man camp was really easy. Like as a hundred person camp, there was like logistics and you know, it was like a 30 K budget and it was easy for me. And I have a friend who's like a top engineer, one of the best programmers I know. And he's like, oh my God, I could never do this. And I'm like, dude, I could never code. And he, and, but this is easy for me. And he was like, well, coding is easy for me. And so you end up like when you're with your friends, you're asking for advice. Uh, if you have a friend who really values family, you'll say, oh, maybe I should value family. If you have a friend who really values um, financial security or like making money, you'll say, maybe I should value that. Like maybe I should do that thing. And so once I had a true North where I could say, oh, you know, my best friend, Sean, he really values financial stability and I don't value that. And so that doesn't mean that either of us is right or wrong. It just means that we have different values. That was like the first thing where I could then believe in what I was saying versus believing in other people's stuff. Um, and then I think once you, uh, the, the, the flip side of that, and it's like the related point is just realizing that Oh, like my values or my, the things that I do that are in alignment with that are my superpower. And I have those things and other people don't. And if I start to dial into that, then all these crazy things happen. Like it just becomes, you know, all these magic, like seemingly magical things happen. And so um, that was the other part. But then I started trusting in mine specifically and seeing that return. And then I was like, wow, this is working. I just need to do more of that. And, and, um, that kind of gave me the confidence in it. So it's almost like a very positive uh, cycle of you get an alignment, you understand that true north, where you want to go. You then have belief in in that. And then you can take action and then you can start seeing things working and then you start to have more belief in yourself. And then you just keep going up and up and up. Is that, is that kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing? 
Totally. Yeah. And I think the oftentimes the thing that happens is like you do the thing you're really good at and you're like, oh, this is too easy. I'm not challenging myself. So let me do the thing that I'm not good at. Instead of saying, how do I take the thing that I'm good at? And let's say I'm at level three. And how do I take that to like level 40? Like, how do I just keep, how do I keep like for me community? How do I keep building community until it gets hard? And then I'm going to be like way, way higher on that ladder for that value than the other way around. That is interesting. So instead of, instead of saying, okay, I'm good at this thing. Now let me move on to the next thing that I'm not as good at or, or shift my focus away from this. Take this to such a high level that it then becomes hard again because you've achieved such a high level in it that it's, it's once again challenging. Exactly. And, and it might take, you might have to think creatively about how to do that for yourself, you know, and that's, that's the harder part in that cycle, I guess. Okay. So you're, you're getting all these things in line. It seems like this is a lot of uh, introspection and working with, working with your coach and asking yourself some really hard questions and really taking a stand and, and getting your mind right. And then you're like, okay, now I know what I need to be doing. At what point in this, in this process did you actually start your business? Yeah. So, um, so the play by play is, so I do this values exercise. I'm working on three different startup ideas simultaneously and this burning man camp. And, um, with the coach over the course of two months, I, um, I like stopped working on two of the ideas. I, um, broke ties with the team working on the ad tech idea. Uh, I devote two weeks to fully focus on the burning man thing. And in the background, I had been working on this. It was a burrito bowl delivery idea. Me and my friends went to Chipotle. We got a hundred burrito bowls and we made a website to order these burrito bowls. And I would get really excited to work on that. So I come back from Burning Man and I just start, and my coach is like, why don't you try working on that for like a month, two months, start working on that. And all of a sudden I'm actually excited to work on this thing. I end up hiring a Michelin star chef to make burrito bowls. I do tastings. It's like all out of my kitchen. Um, and I'm like, okay, cool. We're launching this thing. This is going to be great. And, uh, and then a week before, or two days before, my chef quits. He's like, hey, I'm like, not really into it. No. Uh, uh, I had just, I had emailed a whole bunch of friends, not like, I didn't do anything crazy, but emailed at least like 150 people that was like, here's the menu that we're gonna launch in, in a week, and it's gonna be awesome. And, um, and then this guy quits, and I'm like, oh my God, this is so embarrassing, so horrible, I, like, what am I going to do? I got nothing. And I just go into this depression slump. Uh, and I end up meeting up with my former boss, one of the guys I used to work for at Groupon. And I tell him about this, this whole story. This is like three later. And he's like, Hey, um, so I didn't know you're working on a food now. Uh, I know this guy, we, um, just helped him set to a seed investment and he pulls out a test tube of coffee and he's like, try this instant coffee. And, um, I was like, wow, this is pretty good. And he was like, cool. Uh, do you have time now? 
And I was like, yeah, you know, I, I'm not working on this other thing. Like that's over. Uh, and so I walk over, it's like two blocks away and I meet my co-founder. He opens the door and it's a garage in San Francisco and he's wearing an apron and he, it was like, I'm working on this instant coffee. And so he just made, uh, he'd made a prototype, uh, was trying to figure out how to sell it. Could only make, I think it was like 10 cups at a time or a month or something like that. And we, we hadn't sold any tubes yet. Um, and this was right before Christmas. And so we just started talking and I said, you know, why are you doing this? He, so he was the ninth best barista in the world that year. He won this championship. He was like classic, uh, his name's Kale. Uh, I was with him the other day. He's like a hipster barista type at the time. <laughs> and it's like, why are you making this instant coffee? And he was like, well, you know, I, um, I realized that I used to really care about the scientifically perfect cup of coffee, but really I realized that coffee is about making people feel good and building community and all. And I was like, dude, this is exactly like, I literally wrote that on a note card about my burrito bowl idea two weeks ago. Like we got to like talk about this and we started vibing and it was right before Christmas. And in that meeting I was like, okay, so you haven't sold any yet. Right. And he was like, no. And I was like, all right, let's figure out how to sell this in a week. Can like, how many can we make? And he was, and then we just like, you know, did the operations plan, you know, I went and like made the website, he brewed the coffee and we launched it and we sold out in 30 seconds. So we were like, wow, cool. There's, there's a thing here. Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. Okay. There are so many doors here that I want to, that I want to open, but let's rewind for a second. Okay. Because I, I think we, I think there's a really important thing that, that I want to drill down into. When you were doing the the burrito bowls, yep, and you had hyped it up to 150 people, or maybe sent emails, and then there's more hype on top of that, and everything was set to go, and the dude quit on you at the very last second. Yeah, that's like the worst possible scenario, right? Like, like you made these promises, and then, for, you know, outside of your control this person just totally just destroyed everything and then you, you could not deliver on the things that you said like that to me seems like the ultimate fear of entrepreneurs of like i make all these promises i make this big thing and then i just i do not deliver on it like and i'm not i'm not trying to to you know i, I i'm saying this because I think there's a huge lesson here and like you went through that like you went through worst case scenario and you survived and 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 then and then you thrived can you talk a little bit about like like what did you how did you feel during that point and how did you then get back up and keep going yeah so I love that you asked that um, because that happened. So in this year and a half that I was trying ideas, I tried probably, I don't know, 10 to 15 different things. And every idea had that point for one reason or another. Um, I, you know, tried doing the shopping thing first and took it to a certain point. And then I kind of burnt out. And then I had people who said, Oh, like, I want to use that. And I was like, Oh, I'm not doing it anymore. Uh, tried doing another thing where, um, I was a, a 
a peer mentoring group where you imagine like bringing 10 people together for uh, to, to mentor each other and you make it like this paid coaching service and did the first couple. And at the end of every one, I was like, we're doing another one in two weeks. But then the economics on the idea didn't work. So I didn't do another one in two weeks, but I had to tell everyone that we were doing one in two weeks. And so you get these emails, where is, is it happening? Is it happening? You're like, no, it's not happening. And so much of trying out these ideas is you have to put up this landing page or verbally make these promises because you're trying to make it real enough to get people to tell you that they want to buy. But for various reasons, either the team or the economics or not enough people tell you they want to buy, you dump the idea. And especially for me at that time, uh, I had 10 friends who got married that year, uh, from close friends from high school. And I'd go to all of these weddings with their parents and every wedding they'd be like, oh, how's your uh, shopping business going? And I was like, oh, we're not, not doing that anymore. I'm doing uh, uh, coaching, like next wedding. How's the coaching business going? Oh, I'm not, not doing that anymore. Doing burrito bowls. How's burrito bowls going? Oh, I'm not doing that anymore. And so you end up, I think that was the psychological training of being an entrepreneur that that year gave me, which is um, getting used to trying something, putting it out to the community, telling the world. And that's the thing people are, you're scared to do because you don't want to go through that. Then having it fail and then meeting those same people and walking with your tail between your legs and saying like, yeah, that's, I'm not, not doing that one anymore. And just getting used to that. Um, but I think like, you know, um, working with, uh, it, it does suck. It sucks every time it doesn't get easier. It gets a little bit easier. Like you recover in a few days instead of a few weeks. Uh, but it's still hard, but I'm working with, Michelle, my coach at the time. So we would divide this up into sprints. Like she'd say like, okay, cool. You're going to do this for a month or two months and don't get too attached to the idea. You're just trying, you're, you're learning about yourself as much as you're learning about the idea, as much as you're learning about the team. And so that, when that happened, um, you know, I remember calling her and just saying like, should I keep trying to do the burrito bowl thing? Should I try to do this? And we went back almost to square one and said, like, why don't you just take two weeks, do something fun. Like, learn, like I wanted to code. I wanted to just like take an online coding course. She was like, just do that. Don't worry about it. And see if something else bubbles up. And then lo and behold, it did. And so, yeah, that, but um, I won't lie. Like that sucked. Like that was like, I, I was meeting with my former boss from, from Groupon and I was like almost going to cancel the meeting because I was, you know, about to just tell on a horribly embarrassing story. And, um, yeah, that's just sort of like this, uh, it sucks every time. Well, I think, I think you're right that it, it does not get like, it, it sucks every single time. And dude, I've had so many failures in my life. Like, if there was a Guinness Book of World Records for like number of times that you have failed at things, like I would definitely be up there in the <laughs> in the ranks. But um, I, I totally agree that you you do get to like bounce back faster, right? And you like you get to keep you know keep coming back and keep coming back, and you learn from every single one. And you know, I think it is such a such an inspiring story to hear you talk about that because very few people are actually willing to to admit that and to be like yeah i tried this and i failed 
and I tried that and then I failed there. And then, you know, the, I think the takeaway there is that you survived, you made it. And like, now you're working on this amazing, amazing thing, which I definitely want to get more into. Um, but that is such an inspiration. That's, that's so inspirational. And, and that, you know, for the, for those who are listening, they're like, oh man, I'm, I'm on my fourth or fifth thing. And I just keep failing. Like, yeah, it's going to happen, but you got this. You just got to keep going and keep, keep working. I keep trying those new things. So I'm very glad and, and, uh, very glad that you were willing to share that. So thank you. Totally. Uh, the scary thing is that, uh, it's still like that, except now you take bigger, like you just have to keep taking these bigger and bigger bets. Like we are going to try a new technology and we're going to just buy this thing for like 300 K and it might totally not work. And you're just like, yep, we're going to just have to try it. Like you can't, you can't know. And that um, it's important to build that. And that it's cliche. Everyone says like fail fast, get used to failing, get used to failing, but to um, whether the emotional aspect of it, and I can't say I'm an expert, you know, it's, and I also recommend like having a therapist for these things, like all that stuff. Uh, but you need to build that emotional core to deal with it. Cause it's, it's hard. I agree. I a hundred percent agree. So let's keep going through the narrative. Um, I'm really interested in learning about the 30 second sellout. So let's drill down into that. How did you actually make that happen? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, um, that one was actually, so we, we only had, you know, 200 servings at the time. Uh, and so we, we made, we were selling it right before Christmas. We made it a holiday stocking stuffer. And um, my co-founder ha has a really, really strong network and reputation in coffee. Um, and then I also, I grew up in the Bay Area, so we were in San Francisco. So I have a lot of friends in San Francisco. So um, we made this really awesome stocking stuffer gift. We had two tubes of coffee. We used these glass tubes, which in retrospect wasn't very smart, but we got them off Amazon. And we were selling it for two fifty a serving, so you get two for five dollars, and it was instant copy. Um, we still sell; we actually sell more than that now. But at the time, we were like, no one's going to buy instant copy for like three bucks a serving. Like that's crazy. Um, but we made a Shopify website. Uh, we we actually got studio equipment on Amazon, so you can like take photos. Uh, we were in this garage. We set up a table. We took like really cool shots of the powder and we did all of this in like four days or five days, um, like just moved really, really fast. And, um, and then we just posted it on Facebook and, and Instagram. And, you know, we said, Hey, we're launching this holiday stocking stuffer, um, you know, made coffee made by the ninth best barista in the world roasted by, I think it was ritual coffee was our first one. So it was really, really high quality coffee and uh, you can get it in time for Christmas. And I think we said we would handle it. So we actually bite to everyone and delivered the coffee. And um, I think it was just a really, it was something no one had seen before. And um, when you're working on these startup ideas, you know, everything that you try out, no matter what, 
people you you'll have 10 friends who are like yeah like i would try that once or i think i would like or i have a friend who might be into that so it's really hard to know if someone actually wants the thing like it's really hard to know so when i was doing this shopping idea i get people who would you know tell me they'd be interested and they said i would pay for it until i asked them to pay then they didn't pay so it's really significant when you're trying to figure out what to work on to see that spike, even if it's like a small spike, even if it's like a hundred to just see that it disappears like that is, is the signal that you need to decide if you should work on something. So you want to get to that point as fast as possible. Like instead of having that take three months to get to the point where you can try selling it, try selling it yesterday, try selling it as fast as you can. So you can see if it has that spike with people. So when you're going out and trying to sell it, how do you, like, how do you get the eyeballs on it? I mean, do you, do you invest in the ads? Do you just call everybody that you know? Do you like, how, how do you actually get the, the traffic on it? And if you're trying to sell it yesterday, do you ever pre-sell it? Like how does, the, where do where does that fit into to the equation? Yeah. So, um, uh, so first off, I would say that it's very different when you're like trying to sell it to, um, you know, turn it into a business versus if you're trying to sell it to see if there's like a spike, if there's like people who are interested in buying it. Right. So when I'm trying to get eyeballs on it for like, to scale it, which was a different phase, then it was like, we tried everything ads, PR, um, podcasts, retail, brand marketing, like all that stuff. Before that though, like in that first week, right. Um, we just posted it to our social network, like to our Facebook page, to our friends. Um, you know, I would, I know like a lot of folks are introverted, but I would guess that most people could come up with a list, whether it's on email, Facebook or whatever, but at least two to 300 people where they could get eyeballs on something to get a signal of whether people would want to do something or not. Um, and that's like the main, the main thing that's enough. And these things are binary. Like I think a lot of folks get caught up on like, is 200 statistically significant. It's like either going to really work and you'll know, you'll know because everyone wants to buy it or it's not going to work. Um, there's another question around like, is it the right market? Like what if I'm in San Francisco and I'm making a product for people in, you know, uh, I, you know, 1800 style cowboys. I don't know. I'm making something up. How do I get at those people? I still believe that even in your group of 200 people, you'll have some people who get like really, really into it, even if it's like some kind of weird niche product. Um, so that's like how I would address that. And pre-orders. Yeah. So absolutely pre-orders work. I think the important thing is that you are taking a credit card and charging people in that moment. In other words, like if you said, hey, sign up for my wait list and you get to pay me in three months, that wouldn't be as significant. If you're like, sign up for a pre-order, pay me now, and then I'm going to give it to you later, that counts to me. Um, and I've noticed this because I had a lot of ideas where I would say, like, would you pay for it? Sign up for the wait list. And they'd say, yeah. And then I would say, cool, pay, now pay me. And people would say, no, like I, I talked about it with my girlfriend. I'm not really into this or like whatever, you know, et cetera. So having that, um, 
making someone make a decision to give you a credit card is a buying decision. And that's what you need to get to. So y'all sold out in 30 seconds, which is amazing. What happened after that? So, um, yeah, so we sold out in 30 seconds. Um, this period for us was more also about testing out working together. And I think that's really important. Um, we decided when we, before, you know, we had that first conversation and I said, Kale, like, let's try working together for like a few weeks. Um, at the end of the few weeks, let's revisit and see if we still like working together. And if not, then, you know, no problem, no harm, no foul. And if yes, then let's figure it out. So after that, we were like, cool, we sold out. Um, more importantly, we liked working together. Um, it was fun and we got a lot of shit done. Um, excuse my French. And so we were like, cool. French, like, let's French welcome. French, very yeah. welcome. Um, I don't know the rules with live, with live, with live streaming, but, um, so at that point, um, it was Christmas. So we took Christmas off and, um, came back and we said, okay, cool. Let's figure out how to make this, how to scale this. And so our problem at the time was uh, since then, like for the first six months of the business was capacity. Um, we were only, um, the way that we figured out how to make coffee optimally. So we, 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 we take coffee, we fully brew it and then we freeze dry it. And that's how all instant coffee is made or it's all instant coffee is brewed coffee. It's dehydrated. And the way you dehydrate it and also the coffee and how you brew it, that's what makes it good or bad at instant coffee. So, um, we, we wanted to figure out a way to make coffee that was as concentrated as possible before we freeze dried it because freeze drying is really energy intensive. So if you can remove a lot of the water before, AKA you have really concentrated coffee, you can get more out of the freeze dryer. So, um, in that first time we met, Kale was, you know, had been, um, using pour over coffee. And then we brainstormed and said, Hey, like, let's use espresso because it's more concentrated. It's 10 times more concentrated, but you can't make espresso with a, in like at scale, like it's impossible. So he would be pulling espresso shots all day and I would be packaging it. And that's like what we'd be doing. And so we could only make, you know, as many coffees as espresso shots. So everything around then was, okay, well, can we make 200, a hundred this week, 200 the next week, 400 the next week, what do we need to do? What do we need to do to do that? And then we would have these flash sales where, um, every Monday we would sell whatever we made the week before. And this was like really interesting. You know, I think a lot of people who are in, into growth are, are like, well, how did you keep getting more people? Like, how did you get, where did the eyeballs come from? And, um, basically because no, this product had never existed before and there was excitement and, um, you know, more people would come every Monday to place an order. And we're not talking about like that, like tens of thousands of people, right? It's like a few hundred people. So one person who's a barista at a top cafe gets it, they post it, all of their friends want to try it. They try it, you know? And so it kind of spread through this word of mouth. Uh, in a way that was very, like, you can really see how it was spreading out. Um, and then I think we made a mistake in February where, uh, and I look back and always question this decision. Um, one of our investors said, you know, um, 
like, what if you just started taking subscriptions now? And we said, well, we don't have enough. Um, we don't have enough capacity. He said, well, what do you need for capacity? And we said, well, uh, we need to hire full-time barista. We need to hire someone to pull espresso shots. And that would be really expensive. And he was like, how expensive? And I like ran the numbers and I was like $6 per cup to make it. And he said, well, why don't you try charging $6 and make a subscription? And so we did. And so we, you could buy five for 30 bucks and we, as a subscription, and we just put it out there and we got, you know, 300 subscribers right away. So we're like, oh, cool. This is awesome. But we lost all of the scarcity. Um, it, and, and so within, you know, two months, uh, a lot of those people were no longer subscribers because a lot of them were, um, uh, you know, people in coffee who have access to tons of coffee and they didn't need a subscription for instant coffee. They just wanted to try it. And we had no reason for like people to keep coming back. And that's, um, and that's like a whole other story how we like, dealt with that. But that was sort of like, I would say the second phase of the business where things all of a sudden got really hard around doing that. Um, wait a second. Wait a second. There's so much here and I, I just, I, we have to drill down into it. So you have this thing where every Monday you have a flash sale and you're selling what you made the week before. Okay. That's brilliant. That is so brilliant. That is like built in urgency and scarcity. Like that's amazing. Um, but it was legitimate. Like you could only make so much coffee. Um, you mentioned how your investor told you to start taking subscriptions. So how did the investor get into the picture? What was the relationship there? And yeah, so let's start there and then, and then let's talk about the subscription a little bit. Yeah. So, um, so at the time we had, um, we basically had a bunch of seed investors uh, or angel investors. So these are mostly folks who uh, have, um, who've done startups on their own. Um, and, you know, they put in, you know, anywhere from, I think as low as like $10,000 all the way up to like 50 or a hundred thousand for, for some books, you know, so what not, this is before Y Combinator, this is before uh, CRV or where we were raising larger rounds. So, um, you know, like, every couple weeks um, and it's equivalent to like an advisor, you know, like, uh, or a bot, like a former boss or something like that. So, you know, we would go meet with these different folks. Um, someone was a marketing expert. Someone was, you know, a product expert or whatever. And just say like, Hey, here's what we're up to, et cetera. And um, so one of the guys we talked to had sold a couple startups and he, this, he wasn't like a major investor, but he was just giving us advice. And um, I don't think he, he necessarily, like, I think we took the advice a little too seriously, but he said, you know, he was just helping us. He was pushing us to break through constraints. So we had said, you know, eventually we want to make a subscription. And so he said, well, why can't you make a subscription today? And we said, well, we don't have capacity. And, he said, well, what would you do? You know, and it's sort of this like chain of lies, right? Leading to, well, why don't you try just doing a subscription tomorrow? Uh, and I think at the time, like neither myself nor Kale, we, like neither of us were like truly good at online marketing. So what we were missing is that, hey, 
um, screw the sales. This flash sale thing is a great email list builder and it's getting engagement and it's a thing in itself and it doesn't need to connect to the actual sales and keep that alive as much as possible, right? Like don't hurt that. And, um, and so we were focused on like, how do we make the subscription work? That's the long-term bet. We, we knew we wanted to eventually have a subscription, right? So, um, uh, and so, so, you know, I think we kind of listened to that advice a little too much and, um, we kind of lost sight of like the thing that was, you know, we, we ripped the bandit off too soon. It was kind of what happened. And so it's not, it wasn't, you know, I know when I say it's an investor, it sounds like, oh my God, this, you know, big scary shadowy figure made us do this thing that wasn't how it happened we were literally having barbecue at a restaurant with this guy who was brainstorming ideas with us and you know tested pushed on a bunch of our assumptions and then we were like okay well let's try this out um i still don't know you know we don't know whether that was the, the if we hadn't done that what would have happened like the flash sales could have easily eventually stopped working too but you never know so with all these in, uh, these angel investors, advisors, people who would would put in some money, how did you like? How did you deal with the with with compensating them? Like, what was their incentive? Why would they invest money in you? And how did you like? How did you manage that relationship? Um. So. Um, so all these folks are, you know, investors in the same way that a VC firm would be an investor. So they're, um, you know, they own a share, they own shares in the company. And so, um, you know, they want us to, you know, presumably do really well and either get bought eventually or um, go public or, you know, have some form of an exit. Um, and, you know, I think like our, our market, what's really interesting about, the market we're in is, you know, instant coffee. I keep for, it's something like a $50 billion industry worldwide. It's had no innovation and specialty coffee, which is sort of the movement to treat coffee like wine, where you're getting like single origin coffees, et cetera, makes up over 50% of us coffee consumption. Now retail coffee consumption. In other words, the hipster cafe is the main way people are drinking coffee today in the U S only over the last couple of years. In other words, it's growing really fast. And so we combine the two. That's like what our, our idea is about. Like we want to make hipster coffee more accessible to people in the U S or in the world. Um, so I think that, um, to me, like that's why, you know, we were able to raise money because I think it's a really, like it makes sense. I, and, and I still think it makes sense, you know, you, four years later. Um, and, um, but, you know, I think when you raise money from uh, angel investors, you went like, I think we probably have a list now of 20 or 30 people. Some have put in a couple million dollars and some have put in a couple thousand dollars. Uh, and so, yeah, you, you, you know, you have to send out, um, I'm actually not great at this, but you should be sending out a monthly update, uh, um, or at least a quarterly update. And then, you know, you treat them also as your list of mentors or advisors. So if, if you need help with someone, you reach out, if you need help with something, you reach out. Um, I think what's interesting though, is, you know, you have to find folks who understand startup investing and get that, 
no matter how good the business, 99 or 90, but I think it's 99% of startups fail. And the CEO doesn't have time to send you detailed financials because it's, it's just the CEO and three people or four people and be ready for that. And you know, that it's kind of like throwing your money into a black box to work on this exciting idea that might go nowhere. But as an investor, like you have a belief that this should exist and someone should try it. And that's kind of, I always recommend the mindset for someone getting into angel investing. Like you, you want to just see if this idea has legs. Um, and so, you know, I do caution folks, like I've talked to other entrepreneurs about, you know, like if you're taking money from a, someone who is used to hedge fund investing with detailed financials and like all this stuff, like different ball might, game, huh? different ball game. Yeah. And so you'll have folks who like, they put in $2,000 and they're asking you for like lots of details and you're like, Hey, like this is still taking me a couple of hours that I need to be spending with the team. And I can't, you know, like, I'm sorry, but like, I got to give you the rough answer here. Um, and I think that's just an interesting learning on the investor side. So I want to, I want to just touch on this just a little bit more and then, and then I want to keep hearing about the story because this is fascinating and I don't want to, I don't want to get off track. Um, but when you're finding these advisors and you're giving them shares of your company, like that is a huge gift that, that you are giving away. That's a piece of you that you are, that you are literally saying, here you go. I'm trusting you with this. How did you vet them? How did you make sure that they were the right people to essentially marry in a business way? So I think um, when it's someone who's writing a large check, like if it's over a couple hundred thousand dollars or over, and you know, as you grow as a company, you that what you consider large increase, it changes. Um, you vet someone in the same way that you um, gather references for hiring someone uh, in other words, you ask for other companies that they've invested in, you talk to a few of those references, and you, um, you get more info. But I think the other thing is that um, you also have to, I think a lot of entrepreneurs worry a little bit too much about giving up control. Um, you know, like you, you kind of have to take uh, I've been getting into Buddhism a lot more lately. I have a friend who's, who's, who's really into it. Um, you have to take a frame of, it's like not being so attached to this company that like, it, you know, you, sudden copy, it, like I have put my heart and soul into this company, but it, it does not define me. It's something I do. And it's something that I'm doing now at this point in my life. And I will probably work on other companies. I might go work for someone else. I might found another company. And this is the, you know, uh, hopefully one of many. And so you're trying to find people who um, get the idea quickly. Like they're just excited about it. They get you, you like working with them. Those are sort of like emotional feelings and then you got to move forward. Like you can't spend too much time getting worried about it. An investor who's putting in $5,000 has no, like they have no control of the company. They can't, they don't, the voting rights don't carry enough weight. 
and you can choose to ignore them via email. They can give you bad reference. They can tell other people not to invest. That's a possibility, but um, you kind of just got to trust it and say, hey, like it's more important for me to figure out how to make more cups of coffee than worry about vetting this investor we're all here to make this work as fast as possible. Incentives are aligned in, to me, in my mind, incentives are aligned. Like all of us want this to be successful. We might have different versions of what that means, but we still want to make it successful. Cool. Like that's it. Let's, let's do it. And if it turns out that's just another risk you take, like in the same way that my chef quit and I was trusting my chef. If you have a investor who, hurts you or the company or whatever, and the company fails because of that. First off, I think that's pretty rare. I think it's very rare that you have an investor who directly leads to the failing of the, of the company. But if that does happen, then okay, like move on to the next one and you weren't. And I think that's all you can do. That's very wise. Very wise, my friend. Um, I, I feel like it's interesting to see somebody like yourself who you're in the trenches and you're going through this stuff and to really like get, get the inside peek into how you think about this. I, I think that is incredibly valuable and I'm very grateful that, that you would share that. Um, okay. So let's, so let's get back onto the story because I think this is such a great story. So you try the subscription, you got yep. the 300, some people are falling off the flash sale. you that, that now isn't the, the model what do you do from that point? Yeah. So, um, so at the time, so we're working on two really big problems. Um, the primary is how do we make more of this stuff? Like we can't be making a thousand. We got to be making 10,000, a hundred thousand, a million. Um, is there a giant espresso machine? Like, does that exist? <laughs> right? like that's literally what we're, you know, like, is there a giant freeze dryer? How do we get more freeze dryers, right? So there's like a lot of energy going into the, that problem. And, you know, we thought I, when we started Sudden Coffee, we were like, great, we're going to take really high quality beans. We're going to send it to like a magical instant coffee co-packer. They're going to send us back coffee in the way we want it. It's going to taste great. And we'll just be a marketing company. I mean, it wasn't that clear, but that's kind of like, I don't think we, I could have said it to you like that before, but that's kind of what we were doing, the thing, actions we were taking. Well, it turns out that was impossible. And there's like a whole bunch of reasons, like the last three years of the company have been mostly focused on us designing, really engineering, industrial engineering ways to make this at scale at, at a cheap enough price. Um, so like, it literally would cost us $6 for one serving. Um, and it looks like this, by the way, this is a, a tube of sudden. So $6 to make one of these. And um, we were selling it for $6. So it was too freaking expensive. Um, and we could only make a thousand, it's a low capacity. So we're working on that. And then on the marketing side, um, that's when we said, okay, well, uh, what, do we, what do we do here? So, you know, we, we started just doing all of the things that um, I think most people in Silicon Valley talk about, like, let's do Facebook ads. Let's do a Snapchat campaign. What, I paid this service $2,000 that was because they sent me a cold email that was like, we're going to do, do Snapchat marketing. It's a new thing. Try it out. 
I didn't do any diligence on it. I was like totally novice. I sent them to K and they basically took our product, gave it to, it was like at a fire festival before fire festival happened. They gave it to girls on a beach with a, in bikinis and Snapchatted it. And I was and I'm like running the numbers and I'm like, this isn't causing any sales. Like what do I, and it was so in retrospect, so embarrassing. Like, why would I do that? But I was just, we, we were searching for something like, let's just do the playbook, buy Facebook ad, put up a website, you know, all that stuff. And, um, and none of that worked. Um, we would get like a $60 acquisition cost. And I think we'd end up having $40 of value, lifetime value out of that. Um, and so at some point we, we then said, okay, let's do a really in-depth marketing study. So we went to a whole bunch of cafes and we started just interviewing people in our city, like in different cities to get a feel for like, what do people like about copy? What are the things we should focus on, not focus on? Like a really interesting insight was that like most people who go to hipster cafes don't actually know anything about specialty copy. Like they don't know, they don't know what the origin is that like they, that doesn't really matter. It's more about things like the hospitality that's made by a person. Um, sorry if there's weird background noise. Um, uh, the adventures of live streaming. <laughs> yeah. Our, uh, we have upstairs neighbors who, I don't know what they do up there, but there's always some weird noise. But let me know if it's too bad. Um, so we did that. We thought that our target was millennial women because that was who was spending the most at hipster cafes. Redid our website to focus on that. That didn't work. And this, like, months are going by at this point. Um, keep doing more Facebook ads. They seem like they're working, but it's not really working. Um, eventually, we, um, we did Y Combinator through this process. Eventually, I think the thing that was most useful was one of our, another one of our investors, advisors, um, she was one of the founders of Flickr. And she was like, you know, in the early days of Flickr, we went customer by customer and we stocked them. Like we looked at everything that they did, everything they posted. And so she took our customer list. She took everyone who had been with us for over four months. It was something like 250 people. And she went person by person and looked them up on Google Street View look them up on LinkedIn, look them up on Facebook. And before that, you know, she'd ask me who likes sudden coffee. And I was like, everyone, I can't see a trend. Like I can't, there's all ages, everything. And when she filtered for only people who've been with us for four months and people outside of San Francisco, like outside of our social network, um, it was really clear who the customer was. They were 35 to 55. They lived in suburbs. They were like doctors, um, professors, a lot of people in education, they tended to be well-educated, somewhat wealthy and they had kids and they were really busy and they had lots of interests. Um, imagine like you used to live in Chicago, you went to nice restaurants, you moved to the suburbs, you still want nice food, you don't have time. And that was kind of who the customer was. And at that point we hired a brand firm and we basically like redid everything to really target that customer which was kind of an interesting, yeah, that was kind of an interesting experience. Um, that still didn't work, but at least we got farther at that point. So then what happened after that? Yeah, so what happened after that? 
Um, so it's starting to work better. But I think what's re what really started working is um, we, we then would get, and since the beginning, we'd get asked by other roasters, other coffee companies to make their versions of instant coffee. And we always said no to that. Um, at first, it was because we wanted to build our own brand. We wanted to be this like marketing company. And then we would start to say yes, but it was too expensive. We'd tell them, yeah, we can make it for you. Um, it costs us five, at that time, $3. So we could, we'd have to charge you $3. And then they're like, well, we need to sell, we'd need to sell it for seven or eight, you know? And, and so that wouldn't work. Um, and then we made it cheaper, but the minimum size we could do with this one piece of technology was 2000 pounds of coffee at a time and specialty coffee costs at least, you know, roughly $10 a pound. So you're asking them to put up 20 K of beans, which is crazy. So there were all of these issues. So we're like kind of getting along custom with the, um, this customer model, like selling to different folks. We changed our logo. So here's our logo. You can see that it's, it's sort of like retro, but reinvented to appeal to that, uh, like, um, generation X consumer. Um, but we we took a couple bets with a couple roasters where we said, okay, we'll make your instant coffee and we'll take the inventory risk and we'll sell the rest to our customers. Proved out that it worked. And then in the meantime, we raised another round of funding off of that. And then I, we made some really big bets on the manufacturing side where we bought some equipment that like instead of working with a co-packer or an outsourced vendor, we're like, let's just we probably spent a million dollars buying different pieces of machinery, not knowing if we would have like the business model to support it. But um, finally that started working and then we ended up being able to go to roasters and now we can charge a dollar eight cents to the roaster. Um, we can have a minimum batch size of 250 pounds and all of a sudden we started getting tons and tons of partnerships with people where all these roasters now want us to make their versions of instant coffee. And moreover, it's a much better customer experience because what we were finding was, you know, we were selling people um, these tubes online with a subscription. And so as a consumer, you're buying sudden coffee. So you got to believe three things when you hit our website. Number one, uh, I want to try instant coffee, which most people haven't in the U S number two, um, that I want to subscribe to coffee, which most people don't subscribe, even if it's like the best coffee in the world, you're not subscribing to your coffee. And number three, that sudden coffee as a brand makes good coffee, whether it's instant or beans or whatever. So it's a lot to ask. So we now work with, so here's an example of a roaster product. So ritual coffees in San Francisco. Um, we make this, it is in their brand and you know, they're really good at, they have stores, they've been in business for 20 years. They're really good at talking about coffee and why this is a good coffee. And so when consumers buy it and they're buying it from a barista who tells them about it, who's excited about it in person, all of a sudden it makes more sense for people. And so we found that for the consumer, it's just a much better experience too. And so we kind of have been dropping the online model, believe it or not, as ironic as that is from where we started. And um, now we're focused on 
getting it into as many cafes as we can. That is incredible. Yeah. So, so did y'all ever think about, cause you said that you would take the bet or take the risk on the inventory side and then you would sell it to your customers if, you know, if, if that ever happened. Um, have y'all thought about bringing back that flash sale model for any of the excess inventory? So, um, yeah, so the way that it worked originally, so um, Equator was one of our first um, roasters and they really, the CEO of Equator, her name's Helen, she's phenomenal, pushed me to do this, like pushed us to make a co-branded product. And so what we did is we bought 2,000 pounds. We needed coffee for a website. We still have the website. We said, great, we'll switch over. So our, our coffee is Equator and we'll sell you, we'll sell Equator some of whatever, however much you guys want. So we were buying the equivalent of, you know, 17,000 servings of Sun at the time, and they would buy 2,000 off of us, like a small amount. Um, and it's still like that. So our medium roast is from Equator and our light roast is from Intelligentsia. Those were the first two partners. If you buy Sudden with a Sudden brand on it, it's one of those two coffees. Um, now, the, you know, now we work with 10, we're up to 13 roasters as of last week. Um, and the question is, and so, you know, we're sending them boxes with their brand and they're selling it in their stores and you can actually buy this in Whole Foods as well, which is really awesome. But um, should we bring it back on our website? And I absolutely want to do that. Um, since we moved to this model, we have been nonstop selling out, just getting it to them. Wow. So, which has been crazy. Like, it, you know, we'd spent, you know, a couple of years where we ha were way over capacity. Um, we kind of went in the far other direction. We went from being able to make a thousand a month to being able to make like 60,000 a month. We didn't have the demand. Uh, and now like we just can't keep up. So I think we will go back to that. But um, yeah, right now we're, we're kind of just focused on getting them coffee. And it's cool. I, I think this has actually been really interesting as an entrepreneur. Um, people would always tell me this, but um, because we are meeting a need for the roaster now, we spend $0 on marketing. We spend $0 on sales. Like we get word of mouth for every new roaster who signs up, three more want to sign up because they see it at their friend's cafe. And this was sort of like a Y Combinator mantra, which is like, make something people want. If you make a thing people want, you'll get sales. And I was always like, that's no, but like, you got to pay to get the eyeballs. Like you got to pay to get someone new, like you got to pay to get traffic. Um, but it turns out we had to pay because we weren't making the right thing. And now that we are making the right thing and it's still instant coffee, but we, the, the right thing in our case was, cheap, low batch size, high quality coffee, that those three things were hard. It took lots of work. Um, but that unlocked the whole thing, which has been really cool. Um, and so I think the mistake was like spending all of this effort on marketing. Like I wish we had just said, cool, Hey investors, we're not going to get, don't expect us to have any sales for a year. We're just going to work on the manufacturing process. Like, I think that would have been a better use of time than 
the brand stuff and the website stuff and the ads and the Snapchat stuff, like all of that. That is such an incredible journey. That is such an incredible journey. So we've talked a lot about professionally, like where you are and how you've gotten to this place. But what's been going on in your personal life this whole time? Ooh, that's a really good question. Um, and by the way, I got to run in about 10, just as a heads up. Sure. Um, yeah. Um, personal life has been uh, pretty hard, actually, I would say. Um, uh, not, not, not like a crazy way, you know, like a, not, no extraordinary events, you know, but um, I think I've, so a lot of what I'm working on now came out of, you know, as I said before, like doing this burning man camp. And I think that for me, like I've always needed to maintain some, something outside of work. So like I keep, I still do that. I run a camp with some friends and and that is sort of like my, where I can put a lot of, you know, unbridled creative energy without having to worry about reporting it out or sales or whatever. But um, I think the, it's, it's hard to, like as an entrepreneur, you know, it's been, you know, it's, it's hard to uh, like have a really, like to really focus on relationships. I think the other thing that um, I didn't think, so I started down this path when I was 28. Uh, at the time, um, I was in a relationship at the time, we, we broke up through just this, through the path, but not because of the, uh, the startup, but all of my friends in the meantime have gotten married. Um, I haven't had time to like really focus on dating in a big way. And you also stop saving, like you're, you're kind of living, um, uh, on a much lower salary. And so like, I didn't think about things like planning for a wedding or planning for like, Oh, like sending kids to preschool one day. Um, and so that feels like very tenuous in a lot of ways where you're like, okay, I wish I had again, like you hear the warnings about doing entrepreneurship and all that stuff, but like thinking about how it shapes your life and the risk that you take, you know, I think I'm like much more hardened as a person. I think like going through um, like stress for me is really easy compared, compared to what it was before, but like it's a lot harder to focus on built, you know, like raising a family or all of those things that now that I'm 33, um, you know, I'm still pretty, I'm still young, but like, it's, um, you know, just stuff I didn't consider five years ago uh, as much. Um, but you know, I think like, I really believe in, so one of my values is relaxation and, um, there's this mantra that like, you gotta be working all the time, live, breathe, die, or start up, just do that, just do that. And I vehemently disagree with that. So I'll take like, like a full Saturday and Sunday, no email. I won't open my phone, I'm not working, no laptop. I'm, I'm not like camping. I'm just hanging out. I'm like watching. It could be Netflix. It could be going to bars. It could be, I really like live music. I could be barbecuing, but I'm not working. And I think that is like so, so, so important for people to like, you have to be like a whole human. You can't like just be your company. If that makes sense. <laughs> Absolutely. So Josh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Uh, it's, it's truly been an, an, an honor and a pleasure to 
share this time with you and, and I'm very appreciative. Um, just have one more question for you, then we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Um, what question should I be asking you, specifically me, asking specifically you, that I just wouldn't think to ask? Hmm. That's a, that's a really good, because I feel like you've asked all of the ones that, that people don't, that people don't normally ask. Um, okay. Uh, are you going to ask it afterwards? Maybe. Uh, maybe something really weird that I do is like a, I kind of, I'm kind of like, like, what do you do on it? So I, I really believe in like doing something really creative. Uh, so I do like a weird thing on the weekend sometimes. Well, now I have to ask what that weird thing is. Yeah. So uh, this kind of was like a random thing that um, a couple of friends and I stumbled upon where um, so we were throwing a Game of Thrones party. Um, and uh, I knew people wouldn't have costumes. So I brought a bunch of face paint and I just like like face paint crayons. And um, to, to, you know, you can just be like, a Lannister will just like paint some red on your face. Right. Uh, and so like two weeks later, I'm, I'm out on a weekend, I get a bar or something and I reach my hand in my pocket to grab a credit card and I pull out one of these face paint crayons. And, uh, and I was like, does anyone want any face paint? So I, I drew like three lines on some, you know, on random people and it became a thing at the, you know, that night. So since then, I always have face paint and if the, if the right moment strikes, you know, at any point, um, sometimes the face paint might happen to make an appearance and it just, and I, what I really like is just like handing it off to other people and, and it's sort of like, I call it like impromptu art. Like it's just a way to do something. You can rub it off really easily. You have to get consent. If anyone ever tries this, get consent, ask people, like it's not okay to draw on people who don't want to be, <laughs> but, um, you know, it's just like a fun, it's just a fun, um, way to, to do something random. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Josh, for coming on the show. I really do appreciate your time. And to everybody who's listening, watching, I want to thank y'all very, very much for being a part of this, for sticking with us till the end. I love y'all very, very much, um, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. Thank you. So, uh, Josh, you want to you wanna wrap us up? Then we'll, we'll close on out. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. For, for folks who are interested, check out our website, suddencoffee.com. Um, and stay tuned. Look out for, for Sudden Coffee in grocery stores. Anytime you see coffee in a test tube, it's us. So uh, it's going to be really great coffee. Awesome. Everybody, thank you so much. I will see you on the next episode.